You are listening to a podcast from The National. 5G, the promise of lightning fast internet speeds and a hyper-connected world that will spawn a new era of automation and AI. One Chinese firm is at the center of the vision. The world's largest telecoms equipment maker, Huawei, is both building this bright future and also being accused of potentially facilitating the darker side of what this technology can offer. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the Nationals Newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. The United States and allies such as the United Kingdom are determined to prevent Huawei from being part of the building of their respective 5G networks. They fear their role will provide a gateway for Chinese security agencies to spy on them. Huawei denies that this is even a legitimate concern, and the United Nations and other countries in Europe, those in Asia, and of course in the Middle East, including the UAE, don't seem as concerned. The UAE has even given work to Huawei for building its own 5G network. Huawei says its business outside of the US is not affected and continues to grow. It's also taking steps to seize those opportunities outside of the US. Now, some of the focus on Huawei in the US is down to its astonishingly rapid success, its rise to the top. Also, there are historic or circumstantial links, depending on your point of view, between it and the Chinese government. For example, the founder of Huawei, Ren Shengfei, was once an engineer in the People's Liberation Army. There's also a certain opaqueness around its ultimate ownership. Now, the Chinese government is utilizing the growing powers of technology at home to increase its ability to surveil. Now, this and, let's say, the fears of of the general power of growing technology has led to agencies in the U.S., such as the CIA, to raise their concerns publicly about Huawei. However, part of these concerns also come amid a growing battle for who leads technological advancement around the world, particularly over AI. Now, will it be America or will it be China? Also, more broadly, Beijing and Washington are locked in a trade war, which US President Donald Trump believes is necessary to prevent unfair competition from Chinese firms causing American firms to shed jobs at home. Now, recently, these tensions seem to have calmed and a deal appeared to be in the offing soon. However, this focus on Huawei raises questions as to what the relationship is actually going to be like long term. Also, we have questions. Are these concerns about Huawei in the US about more than just politics? Should we fear Chinese technological hegemony any more than we should worry about US dominance, as we've seen in other aspects of the digital economy, such as social media and search? Also, is the promise of 5G real enough that it won't matter which country dominates the technology if everybody has access to it? And finally, what does this row mean for investors in this region? To discuss these themes, I'm joined down the line by Dr. John Rutledge. He's Chief Investment Officer at global investment firm Safanad, which specializes in private equity and real estate. He has been an economic advisor to the Reagan and Bush administrations, and also to the current Trump White House on recent China trade negotiations. John, it's good to talk to you, and and, uh, 
thanks for being on the line with us. Uh, this, there's a broader picture to the Huawei debate, which is that uh, Beijing and Washington have been uh, negotiating uh, sort of their trade tensions. And there's been a lot of recent uh, hope that there might actually be a deal that could avoid sort of escalating tariffs. I know you have some insight into, into not just China and, and, and global trade, but also particularly the current uh, state of, of relationship between both parties. Well, unfortunately, I do have some insight, and it's not good. <laughs> I've uh, I've actually been advising the Trump White House, uh, especially the trade team, <clears throat> on how to approach the Chinese negotiations. And uh, the biggest challenge since this began is that uh, the, our trade team has very little knowledge or experience inside China. And I found that in order to do business with someone, you really have to understand them, their history, their culture, and you know what they want. And that's been difficult. The good news is our team has now been with them, I think, nine times. And so they're starting to get to know each other, and that will really help the discussion uh, take place. But the the trade row, of course, started with uh, with uh, Mr. Trump. Mr. Trump relies on a fellow named Peter Navarro, who's an old friend of mine, friend slash nemesis. And uh, Peter uh, uh, thinks all things evil in the world are Chinese, and uh, that uh, they're devious, and we have to protect ourselves against them. So he's completely a China hawk. And the others on the team don't know enough to, uh, about the issue to really counter him very well. Uh, I got brought in because my old friend Larry Kudlow, who's the president's economic advisor, uh, said they needed some help from someone who'd been on the ground in China, where I've, I don't know, I've been probably 100 times. And uh, uh, so I came into the White House and briefed the cabinet on this issue, including the trade team, uh, which is, of course, uh, Mnuchin uh, from, the, from the Treasury, Lighthizer is the trade negotiator, and Wilbur Roth from uh, Commerce, and uh, gave them a full briefing on China, the banking system, the credit markets, the people, the politics, and a trade deal that I thought they could get done. Uh, I think they will get one done. I was impressed with how our team, even though their knowledge isn't deep, they seem to get along with each other quite well and cooperate, and they seem to really want to get a deal done. Uh, and so really the components of the deal uh, are the real issue. The uh, easiest, of course, to accomplish is to get the Chinese government to promise to buy certain things. Uh, that's also the politically most powerful thing you can do, because if they say we will buy soybeans, then the uh, the president can immediately fly to Kansas and be a hero with the soybean farmers. And, uh, and so we'll get a long list of things they say they'll buy to solve the trade deficit. Uh, that's not very important. What is important is intellectual property. And there's a long history in China of working without intellectual property law, because uh, as most Americans don't understand, China hasn't had any property law for very long. It's only 10 or 11 years ago that they passed the first law that allowed a, an individual to own private property in China. And so uh, th the way you protected intellectual property before that was you kept it secret. Uh, now that we will, uh, now that we want to get an agreement done, uh, I reminded them that uh, there's a huge uh, group inside China that cares about intellectual property more than we do, and that, of course, is Jack Ma at Alibaba and the other heads of the tech companies. 
which are responsible for most of Chinese growth, most of the increase in the stock market, and probably the future for Chinese high-tech manufacturing, they want intellectual property protected. The, the difficulty is that even if they pass laws, which the Chinese are doing right now, uh, uh, to protect it, there's no uh, enforcement mechanism because China does not have a set of courts and judges uh, the way we're used to, say, in the U.S. or the U.K., uh, if uh, if a, uh, a Chinese company violates uh, IP law, that course that case will be tried in a local court in a local in a city, not in Beijing, and the local courts are heavily influenced by local mayors, and so it's very hard to figure out after you make an agreement how will you make sure it's lived up to. Uh, there are many U.S. businessmen on the ground, of course, in China, and, and I'm thinking that that's the network that'll tell you whether it's working or not afterwards. I'm pretty optimistic there will be an agreement, and I think it'll look something like I've uh, I've uh, been describing. And uh, the part of it that won't get done, and maybe most important of all, is the telecom uh, issue. Uh, it's, it's linked entirely with the One Belt One Road initiative of China investing outside China, and uh, the, a lot of the future technologies at stake in that decision. I mean, Dr. John Rutledge, you're, you're painting a, a quite a complex picture of um, an economy that has rapidly developed, that is is putting in um, different uh, as aspects of, of its legislation, of its um, regulation as it grows. And, and also you're painting a picture of uh, a U.S. Uh, uh, policy uh, makers who perhaps don't fully understand uh, the guys across the other side of the table. So if, if you're talking about, I mean, as you bring in telecoms as being perhaps the most difficult issue to, to resolve uh, between Beijing and Washington, then how how much of the Huawei um, uh, issue, the the accusations of their of, of them potentially giving a chance for Chinese security agencies to to eavesdrop to to spy? How much of this is a, is misunderstanding and politics, and how much of it is, is are legitimate concerns? Then, well, there, there's a lot of politics involved, and behind that, there is a growing strategic competition between the U.S. and China that I think is at the root of the dispute. Uh, I have, uh, I, at one point in time, advised uh, one of the big telecom companies in the U.S., and I've been inside Huawei's headquarters in China, uh, and uh, it's, a, it's an extraordinary company. It's, an, it's a company, uh, the quality of which is something like Apple Computer here. You know, great leadership, great training, great people. And uh, Huawei and ZTE have been the spear point uh, for Chinese technology going outside China now for more than 10 years. Uh, you may remember that uh, about a decade ago, Huawei made an attempt to buy 3Com yeah. uh, in the U.S., and that attempt was blocked by the U.S. government during George W. Bush's term. Uh, at the time, the people inside the Bush White House told me that this was a real problem and they really didn't want this to happen. And they essentially tried to back me off of writing about it. But uh, uh, so they were pushed back. But meanwhile, Huawei made enormous headway in the rest of the world. Uh, ZTE led the charge with emerging markets, but Huawei close behind. And, and now Huawei last year has more patents, new patents than any other company in the world and is really driving the penetration of high-speed, uh, low-latency telecom around the world. 
Uh, and so China's government is quite close to both those companies. And so they get push from the Chinese government in the form of, uh, of ample availability of loans to the countries that want to buy Huawei's equipment. The U.S. government has not been so far-sighted and hasn't been very helpful to the U.S. competitors. Mm. Huawei is now the largest uh, supplier of network equipment in the world and is growing very rapidly. I haven't seen, as much as I've seen Washington complain about Huawei and security and all that, I have not seen any evidence at all that Huawei equipment has any security issues for anybody. I think it's largely uh, largely political. But even if you take politics out of it, China and the U.S. are really head-on-head as the two largest and uh, strongest economies in the world today. So that that competition is going to persist even if you had full uh, cooperation. What many people don't know is that uh, the, the key to 5G is not just being fast, but uh, having uh, uh, slow or having short delays. Uh, for example, if I'm running uh, an automobile in Dubai and that automobile has no driver, that car has to communicate with a, with a, a computer server uh, very quickly, otherwise you'll run someone over. And so the amount of data that goes back and forth between that automobile and that server, which is housed somewhere in a data center, uh, is uh, massive. It requires one server, which you can think of as one box or one computer, mm-hmm. for each car that's on the road. Uh, 5G is necessary because the delay in transmitting that information is short enough to take uh, to not impose more dangers on the road if you don't have the new network technology you can't use it and so it's absolutely mandatory for any economy that wants to move ahead in technology to have new network equipment available i don't see the u.s government backing off and, and falling in love with huawei uh, i don't see anyone proving that huawei did anything wrong because i don't think they did but I think you will see more and more battles along the way. In particular, the arrest of the CFO in Vancouver yeah. was something that certainly smelled political to me. And uh, my guess is when we finally negotiate a trade agreement, it may also end that case, uh, which uh, which would really support the political interpretation. So if, if we if we look at the sort of broader philosophical aspects of, of, of the promise of 5G and, and, and the connected uh, uh, vision, if you like, for, for society, but but does it matter um, which companies dominate that? I mean, okay, now we're beginning to talk about big tech, um, Facebook, mm-hmm. Google, um, these companies being being perhaps too dominant when it comes to the digital uh, economy. But we we still needed to get there. We still need to to make this happen. I mean, there's been talk about the countries that don't have five G effectively becoming the new third world, and the ones that do have it being you know very very different. Um, so d- should we fear? any particular company or country having hegemony of this technology, whether it's America or China? I think not. I think the the benefits of having new technology and having high-speed data transfer far outweigh 
any issues of uh, you know of, uh, bumping heads between the U.S. and China. So I wouldn't let that slow me down at all. And I do agree uh, that uh, if 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 a country does not stay in the forefront of this, uh, they will not be able to do high-speed data transfer, which means modern manufacturing technology. So it's absolutely critical to have it. And, and, and I guess for, for somebody sitting here in, in, in the UAE, the wider Gulf region, um, listening to this podcast might think, okay, this is all very interesting. Um, you know, Huawei is a big company. I've heard of it. Maybe I use their phones. Um, I, I understand this this wider escalation between Beijing and Washington, but I don't necessarily know how it's going to impact me here. I mean, is is there any any reason why uh, there would potentially be an impact uh, in this region from, from what's happening between uh, China and the US and the Huawei uh, issue? The only impact I know is not at all from the equipment. It's the fact that uh, the current American government is very opposed to Huawei and is using it, I think, as a, as a weapon in the trade war. Uh, the current government also supplies many other things to the region, including military supplies. It's not beyond this uh, administration to use one to try and influence the other. So I think that's the only the only issue I'd worry about is to make sure that it doesn't uh, it doesn't influence the trade done between the region and the U.S. Uh, and the and the U.S. government will try and make that will try and make that case. But remember, we change we change governments every four years, so it's really just a question of time. And this is a particularly uh, President Trump's issue. So any other president, I think this issue largely goes away. So long term, doing business with China um, isn't isn't going to be an issue um, because. Obviously, as you said earlier, being one of the world's largest economies, um, it's kind of unavoidable. And when Huawei is the world's largest supplier of network equipment, again, it's pretty difficult to avoid. It's like saying, "Don't do it. Don't do a business with Apple." It's the same thing. It's 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 not it's not very easy to comply with. No, and in fact, they're even larger than they seem because <clears throat> China is growing six six and a half percent this year. The U.S. will grow two and a half, Europe one, and Japan less than one. So China's growth measured in dollars is greater than all of the other big countries added together. Uh, last time I was at, a, there's a meeting in China every spring called the Boao Forum. The Boao Forum is Asian heads of state that get together. The last one I was at, we had 15 heads of state in one room talking to each other. The, the reason is because Chinese growth and Chinese economy and Chinese trade, Chinese now technology is really just unavoidable. So I think doing business with China is really necessary uh, going forward. And we should we should be trying to find a way to do more business with both China and the U.S. and everyone else for that matter. Dr. John Rutledge, Chief Investment Officer at Safanad, thanks so much for joining us down the line. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, Mustafa. Really enjoyed being with you. That was Dr. John Rutledge, Chief Investment Officer at Safanad, uh, talking about the wider issues around Huawei. Um, interesting that they, you know, the, these issues have come to light again this week because Huawei's posted uh, pretty strong first quarter revenues. Uh, with me is uh, Chris Nelson, Assistant Business Editor. Uh, Chris, bearing out what Huawei have been saying that this, this sort of row with the US isn't affecting business. 
Yeah, um, the results uh, just out this week. Um, revenues are up by thirty nine percent year on year in the first three months of uh, of this year, um, despite the US pressure and you know the concerns over five uh, G equipment. Um, it was his first ever quarterly earnings report on Monday, and uh, the company said revenue totaled one hundred and seventy nine point seven billion one, uh, just shy of a hundred billion dirham. Um, and it shipped nearly 59 million smartphones in the first quarter. So it's 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 really shrugging off uh, what out the outside analysts might have seen as a, p- a potential threat to the company, really. It's, it's, it doesn't seem to be having any effect whatsoever. Um, let's also look at their uh, 5G contracts this year, uh, 23 in Europe, 10 in the Middle East, 6 in Asia Pacific and 1 in Africa. So maybe... Um, we it, it, we don't need to worry so much about Huawei, but but in the telecom sector, maybe some other companies not having such a good week. Um, yeah, uh, Samsung is back in the news again. Um, following its, uh, you remember in 2016, its exploding batteries episode for the Note 7. You know, I'd forgotten all about that, but yeah. now that you remind me, yeah. yes. Well, that was big news at the time. I mean, it, it, it was launched in the summer, and within weeks it had wiped $26 billion worth off its stock value. And analysts were saying at the time, if this isn't enough to kill the company, it's going to certainly kill uh, the, the line. Well, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, it does in this and, case. And, and their, yeah. their new phone, the Fold, this is the problem. They, they, you know, they've got this innovative widescreen yeah. the phone so we're back to the flip phones yeah. flip phones yeah. but it, it's because of the screen size and they're cracking right well it's interesting um, they the uh, early uh, review copies that they sent out as it were a lot so immediately people the analysts and, and people testing them started saying you know these phones are breaking there's the, the displays are breaking um, and given that the, that the phone <laughs> retails at uh, around eight and a half thousand dirham, you really don't want things like that happening. So Samsung has recalled all of those. It has also um, delayed uh, its launch dates for it. Um, it was going to be in the US on April 26th, Europe on May the 3rd, although it had a, actually not given a, a firm date for the Middle East. Um, it's interesting that it says, it seems to imply through what it says that it's the user's fault because it says... Um, the reported issues could be associated with impact on the top and bottom exposed areas of the gadget's hinge, and it says, we also will enhance the guidance on care and use of the display, including the protective layer. Well, which- they, they sent out a bunch of phones in the region, in this region, to, to VIP, very VIPs, um, and uh, I'd like to see them blame them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, moving on to some of the other big news of the week, um, I'll flag the Nationals' coverage of, of the ongoing Abraj scandal. Uh, the third executive arrested, uh, Sivendran uh, Vetpillai, um, who uh, is arrested in the UK as well, uh, together with the founder, uh, well, uh, following the founder, uh, Arif Nakvi's arrest. Um, the, the third executive was very much, according to these accusations, uh, allegations, at the centre of the efforts to hide uh, Abraj's cash crisis, particularly to inflate the value of their returns, but they could take more fees off investors. So it really is continuing to cook on. Uh, we should have some more news, national.ae, so keep following following us on that. Um, big news that came out this week uh, out of Washington uh, related to oil, related to this region. Uh, Jennifer Niana, our energy correspondent, is here to talk about this. But um, Brent crude could be rising uh, to about $80 after the US uh, did not renew uh, oil sanctions waivers uh, for countries importing Iranian oil. Uh, Jennifer, you're, you're writing for us uh, that the expectation is that this will be uh, pretty bullish for oil prices. It's been a very bullish week for oil prices. They jumped 3%. Brent jumped 3% in a day to 74. And uh, as we speak on 
Tuesday, uh, Tuesday afternoon, it's around 75, 75 per barrel. Um, and this is the question of, of renewal of, of, of waivers uh, has been a great source of uncertainty in the markets since January this year. And uh, the U.S. has gone ahead and said they would cancel waivers to eight of Iran's uh, buyers. Three of them have never used the waivers, Taiwan, uh, Italy and Greece. Uh, but I think the two key importers, uh, India and China, uh, are now left in a difficult position because they have no grace period. They have to wind down. And Washington has made it very clear that their target this year is to reduce uh, Iran's exports to zero. Now that leaves a lot of room because we're, we're talking about a million barrels being taken off the market. Iran was exporting around 1.1 million barrels per day on average. And uh, some analysts that I spoke to say the the exports could come down to 300,000. So that's, that's a lot of uh, supply leaving the market. And uh, it, it, it will obviously lead to more tightening over the summer when it's the peak, peak uh, driving season. You know, there will be uh, maintenance and uh, and shutdowns at refineries. Um, so it's it looks really bullish um, for the oil markets. Some are even saying in a very unlikely scenario, if OPEC and allies continue to cut as they are doing uh, with 1.2 million barrels leaving the market, um, you know, oil prices could could even rise to 85 but that's unlikely but uh, above 75 is what is what we're expecting yeah UBS and uh, and city are both uh, looking at uh, around the top end of the 70s aren't they um, it's interesting that you say the waivers uh, affecting affect India and China the most um, China uh, the day after the waivers were announced China uh, the foreign ministry said it had formally complained to the US uh, over the decision um, it's China is Iran's largest crude oil customer. Total imports of around thirty million uh, tons, or about five hundred eighty-five thousand barrels a day, uh, which is around six percent of China's total oil imports. Um, and the ministry has said basically um, the decision from the U.S. will contribute to volatility in the Middle East and in the international energy market. And we urge the U.S. to take a responsible attitude and play a constructive role and not the opposite. Now, this comes at a time when, you know, the trade relationship between the U.S. and China is, uh, shall we say, delicate at, at the very best. So this could have an impact not only on the oil markets, but on the global economy. That's very important because it, it's a fragile time. Um, you know, the IMF has been warning about expectations for growth, and, and so higher oil prices doesn't help demand um, in in general. But uh, also, intriguingly, uh, the the White House made very clear that this decision on the Iran oil waivers was taken in conjunction with two of the biggest producers, uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And if needed in a timely manner, they they will act um, to 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 make sure there isn't a big spike mm -hmm. and. So they're, they're very, they were, they were very keen to to be aware of the of the market, which well, I thought was interesting, Jennifer. When you agree in terms of Saudi and the UAE being in on the ground here and and their ability to actually shore up um, markets if need be, I think the announcement out of Washington also, in a way. Um was quite telling that there have been conversations um, between the Saudis and and the U.S. and also the UAE on 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 global oil markets. We've seen a lot of messages from President Trump, uh, some of them during OPEC meetings, saying oil prices are too high. But at the same time, it seems that there is some kind of dialogue between the U.S. and OPEC uh, on managing. Um, the oil markets. I think the waivers, the grant of waivers last year came as a surprise to OPEC. Um, and the UAE minister has said in the past that they 
did not calculate, um, you know, the supply needed in the markets just in the run up to the sanctions. So I think this would come as a relief to producers here and at the same time um, help calculate how to move forward. Now, the big the big decision will come uh, in June when they meet in, in, in Vienna. But there's also a technical committee meeting in Jeddah next month where OPEC will decide whether to keep the production cuts on the table or whether to, um, you know, um, in increased production. But at the same time, we have to note that the UAE and Saudi Arabia have been over complying with the production cuts. So they have been taking barrels, more barrels than required. So uh, they may not be, uh, it, it will, it'll be fairly easy for them to bring that supply back onto the market. Uh, Jennifer Niana, thank you so much. Chris Nelson, thanks again. Um, for all our business coverage, the national.ae, please. Um, thank you to Kevin Jeffers, our producer, and all that remains is thank you, the listener. Please do join us again next time.